right. Welcome, everyone, to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell. This is episode 43. Today, we are joined by Dr. Christopher Miller, who is the co-founder and vice president of academic affairs at Arihanta Institute, as well as a visiting researcher at the University of Zurich's Asian Orient Institute and a visiting professor at Claremont School of Theology. Those are quite a few hats. <laughs> Welcome to the, the podcast, Chris. Uh, it's great to have you here. How, how are you doing today and uh, where are you joining us from? Well, thank you, Seth. I'm, I am honored to be here and I really enjoy listening to this podcast. So it's nice to actually be on it now. I'm joining from Zurich, so it's evening here for me. It's a little after 7 p.m. and I'm winding down my day with you, which I'm very happy to do and I'm having a great day. I hope you are too. Yeah, well, so glad we were able to make the time to do this. Uh, good morning from Northern California, uh, where we still have that natural sun sort of pouring in. It's a, it's kind of a chilly fall day, a little bit of rain last night, leaves are falling. It's one of my favorite times of year, uh, but it's also a very busy time of year. There's, there's sort of all of a sudden going from really doing no travel at all to all of a sudden there's a lot of busyness picking up. Uh, in fact, we just uh, saw each other in person uh, just about a week or so ago in San Antonio, Texas, of all places, at the AAR conference. That's the American Academy of Religion, uh, an annual conference, really the main conference for uh, religious studies scholars and professors. I think they estimate something like 10,000 scholars congregate at the AAR every year, which, which rotates cities. Um, but it was fantastic to, uh, to see you again in person. Uh, we're both, of course, involved in um, the Yoga Theory and Practice Study Group, which has been going on for uh, many years now. And one of the, I think, important scholarly kind of research hubs for, for yoga studies. Um, and as you know, you attended, we were able to host our first ever yogic studies reception on that Friday night, which was a really fun and uh, successful event. Thanks again for coming. Uh, it, was, it was so cool to get to see so many people in person, including many yogic studies professors who I had only interacted with either through email or like this on zoom and uh it was it was great to get to meet so many people in person but um how, how was your aar experience it was great uh, i was going to make sure you mentioned the reception the yogic studies reception because i really enjoyed that as well it was the first time right um so it was also i experienced as well it was nice to see so many colleagues that I hadn't met in person before, as you say, and also have some time to spend some with others who who I had and who I know. I would also recommend to any of your listeners or any yoga people that if the AAR is in their town, that they should come and they should come check it out and come meet all of these people um, at the at the American Academy of Religion. Come to the reception. Come to the come to our yoga panels. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I presented a few papers there, and uh, one of which was of my book that I know we'll talk about today. And it was just, yeah, it was a great time listening to everyone as well, learning so much. And as always, just getting to meet more and more yoga people, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. I echo that that invitation. I think next year it's in San Diego and then Boston after that. So if you're listening and you're in those areas, uh, check it out. It's always the weekend before Thanksgiving. And um, 
there's always at least a few yoga panels and it's a great way to kind of see who's working on what and kind of catch up with some of the latest um, yoga yoga studies research, which is, uh, of course, what we're going to be talking about today because uh, Chris here has one of the, the latest uh, books in modern yoga studies, fresh off the press. Unfortunately, I don't have the physical book yet. I think it's on its way. Otherwise, I'd hold that up. There it is, Embodying Transnational Yoga published by Rutledge uh, University Press. And uh, that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. And is we're very excited to be the subject of our next online course. So yeah, I'm so thrilled um, that we were able to make this happen. Um, we've been able to partner here with Arihanta Institute to make this course uh, a possibility. And I'm really excited to kind of um, build a course around this book, uh, which we're going to get into, but I think is a really important contribution to, to modern yoga studies. So just to kick us off here, Chris, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to both yoga and Jain studies? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Seth. So... The first time I kind of heard about yoga in, in a major way was when I was surfing. You see my surfboard behind me over here. We're both from California, so we can understand this, the relationship between surfing and yoga culture. But one of the ways I like to talk about how I got into this is that I was out surfing in Manhattan Beach, where I lived at the time. I was working in public accounting. I wasn't doing anything with yoga. And one of my surfing buddies said, you got to try yoga. It'll make your surfing so much better. You know, and of course in Manhattan beach, every half the people are doing yoga already, but I wasn't one of them. So that was kind of like my first, Hey, you should try this out. And that person ended up being my, one of my very good friends, Ryan Mills, who was one of the co-founders at, at what was then yoga glow and is now glow. Mm. And, uh, eventually I started working with them going to, and I took my first postural yoga class with them and uh, with Joe Tastula, some of us may know Joe, uh, postural yoga teacher, and uh, it it hit me like it does many others. Like I was, I had the yoga glow. I was glowing <laughs> after class, and I thought, oh, I want more of this. And at the same time, I also at Yoga Glow, I met um, Dr. Christopher Chapel, who both of us know, one of our our, our colleagues who became a mentor of mine. And he eventually did a, a, a thing there on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. But then I ended up studying and training with him in Santa Monica at the Hill Street Yoga and Meditation Center, which is a was a nonprofit organization. We were really grounded in the teachings of his guru, Gurani Anjali, who is the subject of the first chapter of my book that we'll talk about later. But he taught us the yoga stuff that he had learned from Gurani Anjali. And it was over two years. We met every Sunday. And he would incrementally give us a little bit more at a time. So this is in my late 20s. So we were learning not only asana, we were doing asana, but we were also doing pranayama. We we're doing all kinds of meditations. Uh, we all became vegetarian. We all, uh, we were playing, singing her music. So we were just had all these experiences of yoga for the, throughout those two years. And it was really, for me, very formative in my yoga practice. And so eventually I, I finished a master's degree and then I wanted to go on and do a PhD and I wanted to study yoga more, of course, like all many of us do who come into this, we want to learn more any way that we can. So I ended up going 
and doing a PhD at the University of California, Davis. So further up towards you from LA. And I was at Davis with uh, Professor Smriti Srinivas, who's written things about like uh, Sai Baba, and uh, she's an anthropologist. And as much as I wanted to get in, and I did want to get into the textual study of yoga, that's simply not what they did at UC Davis. So the person that I was going to eventually train with in Sanskrit and other things ended up leaving. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? And Smriti said, well, what about yoga? You can still do yoga. So I kept studying Sanskrit with McComas um, Taylor, who we both probably know as well. So I was doing Sanskrit on the side. and But then I started to get more into the cultural study of yoga. So I was practicing this whole time and uh, at the same time going into various field sites, practicing the yoga traditions that end up being in my book and have, you know, kind of remained committed ever since. So it was kind of a, there's a lot more to the story, but I think that kind of captures most of it. And I finished my PhD in 2018 and have since been teaching various graduate seminars in yoga studies and, and, and now Jane studies as well as you, uh, as you mentioned. So I don't know, I guess I could tell you a little bit about that. Uh, so I started teaching Jane studies when the, when I went into the university as well, yoga studies and Jane studies. And while I was teaching Jane studies, I also became increasingly involved with the Jane community in Southern California. And they were doing a whole bunch of things. One of the things they invited me to do was to come help them with a nonprofit initiative they were doing through JANA, which is the Federation of Jane Associations in North America. It's all the Jane organizations in North America, basically. And they were doing a Thanksgiving food drive. They wanted to feed the homeless and people who didn't have food running up to Thanksgiving. They wanted to serve them food. And so I was the first non-Indian, non-Jane person to become a committee member on mm -hmm. one of their executive committees or the head of one of their committees. And so I ended up helping with that food drive and I got really close with them. And then amidst all of that, as I'm teaching it, as I'm trying to live it through this kind of service with them, uh, they asked, one of the members asked me, hey, you should change your middle name to Jane because you're more Jane than we are. And he was kind of joking, but he kept insisting. And then I finally said, okay, I will. So my middle name is not actually Jane. It's actually Patrick, my legal middle name. But I changed it to Jane at the invitation of the Jane community. And uh, and so now I write under the name Christopher Jane Miller. So that's how I, I wasn't born Jane, but that's how I, I uh, you know got the name, so to speak. So you really embodied it. <laughs> I embodied it. Yeah, I guess you could say. Yeah. Wow. And you were um, you were teaching. You were a professor for I think a number of years at the yoga studies program at at LMU in uh, in Los Angeles. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I was. So I was professor of Jane and yoga studies at the at at LMU. And so what I would do is I would teach one course in Jane studies, uh, an undergraduate course in Jane studies. And then I would teach uh, one graduate seminar per semester in yoga studies. So I kind of had a split between those two things. I had a lot of interactions with graduate and undergraduate students, learned more and more about the Jane tradition, which I had been studying since graduate school. I had gone to the International School of Jane Studies, which is of course affiliated with many of these universities and sent many of my students to that program as well. And amidst all of that during the pandemic, I started to realize the power of online education because we were all teaching online at that time. And just as a, as a sort of hobby, started with some of my Jane co-founders to create Arihanta Institute, where I teach now. 
and uh, was not expecting it to turn into what it turned into, uh, but it did. And so now we have this now fully online, hopefully soon to be fully accredited university online for Jane, primarily in Jane studies, but we do teach some yoga studies as well, which is why we're also actually very happy to be uh, collaborating with yogic studies because that's not like our main thing, but some of our professors, including me, we teach it. So it seems like a nice, uh, you know, collaboration across the platforms. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been watching uh, from 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 across the um, the social media aisle, you could say, uh, at, at the growth and and development of Arihanta Institute, and it's been really impressive what you guys have done in in a short period of time. Uh, it's clear you have a great team um, and and organizers and leaders, and 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 you've brought on great professors, you know, which is obviously, I think most important thing, you know, to, to disseminate and, and share these, these teachings. So, uh, yeah, congratulations on, on the success, the early success of Arihanta Institute. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we're, we're stewards of the online, uh, education, uh, world. We're, we're big fans of teaching online here at Yogic Studies and, um, it, it just makes sense, you know, more than ever to, to make these teachings, these, these texts, these histories, these, um, these ethnographies to make it accessible to, to more people all over the world. And, um, so it's great that you've been able to carve out that for, for the Jane studies, uh, community and beyond. So, all right, let's, let's get into uh, the book a little bit more. Um, the full title of the book is is a very interesting one and important one. So I want to I want to piece it apart a little bit with you. Um, embodying transnational yoga, and then the subtitle: eating, singing, and breathing in transformation. So let's start with the the title itself: embodying transnational yoga. Tell me a little bit about what that means to you and this project. Yeah. So the embodying part has to, well, I guess first and foremost has to do with what practitioners would probably consider when we say we have to embody the practice, uh, which they mean a lot of things by that, I think. But they basically, when people say we we embody the yoga practice, it means we're actually doing it, right? We're living it in some way, shape or form, whatever that practice is for us, according to whatever tradition it is that we're in. So there's no one way, of course, to embody yoga. There's many ways. And I think this book kind of celebrates that there are many ways to embody yoga. And as we'll see later, that has to do with the way, not just with asana, but with the way we eat, the way we sing, do mantra, kirtan, pranayama, all those things. So what it basically means is, you know, we're, we're embodying a practice because we're committed to whatever transformative potential it has, um, whatever soteriological potential, whatever potential it has to give us some kind of spiritual experience or just experience in general, whatever that is. And I'm saying that very broadly. Maybe some people, they don't want a spiritual experience. That's fine too. But what I'm saying is that uh, many systems do. And I focus on those systems that try to convey that there is some kind of spiritual goal or something you can achieve through these practices. So that's what I mean first and foremost by embodying. So we're embodying whatever practice we were taught or given or handed down or received through tradition. And on the other hand, I'm also using some scholarship from uh, embodiment studies, we could call it, right, of people who study anthropologically and ethnographically in living yoga cultures, 
what it means to actually actually embody certain practices. And what I show very generally, the second meaning of embodying here, is that whenever we embody a practice, any practice that we're doing in our yoga community, that practice did not emerge in a vacuum, right? It came from somewhere. And I'm not trying in this book, as you know, we've talked about before, I'm not trying in this book to trace our practices necessarily back to ancient times, although maybe they do. But what I'm trying to do is show right now where those practices may be coming from at the same time. So I, I do talk a little bit about history and social history, where these things came out of India, for example, where these practices come from. But I also really want to understand right now, like we're eating a certain food or we're singing a certain song or we're using a certain instrument. How did that get into our hands in these yoga communities? And what does it mean? What does it tell us about the yoga communities more broadly? It tells us more about the context that they're situated in. So embodying kind of takes on both of those meanings at the same time. We're both trying to transform or have some kind of experience. And at the same time, that experience is being enabled by the broader cultural contexts that we're in. And it's that second part that I think for yoga practitioners that often can get overlooked, the context in which we are practicing. And it's so important because uh, it tells us more about who we are, more about our own tradition's history, more about uh, what it is we might even be trying to achieve that we don't even realize. So I think this will be more concrete as we go through the chapters, but that's what I mean by embodying, embodying yoga, embodying transnational yoga. And it's yoga that's transnational. It goes beyond national borders. It's gone from India to America, as you see in my book, and back. So uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to encapsulate by that by that meaning. Yeah, one of the one of the things I appreciate about this book, um, from what I've uh, been able to read so far, is that it takes seriously the intentionality and the motivations of contemporary yoga practitioners. I think so often and so easily, contemporary yoga is sort of criticized, scoffed at seen as simply cultural appropriation or just not taken seriously as a religious or spiritual um, discipline or enterprise or as you call it a soteriological yoga or you're not you're not the only one to, to call it that i think andrea jane uses that phrase as well and others um but i think your work i i see it as part of kind of a, a growing number of mostly sociological or anthropological works that take seriously the 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 philosophical or or liberation seeking motivations of contemporary practitioners and seeks to understand it on its own terms and within its own complex contexts um so yeah. so I, I i appreciate that uh very much you know about about this work and i think I think there needs to be more of that. The second thing I just want to say and want to hear your response is um, what your work is doing is seeking to move modern yoga studies beyond simply postural yoga. So again, so often we think of yoga today for, for fair reasons as, you know, as associated primarily with uh, yoga postures and, and sequenced stretching and physical exercise. But as we see in the in the subtitle of your book, eating, singing, and breathing, and each of those 
have chapters to themselves and case studies within your within your work, uh, we we see that this Im- embodied transnational yoga is much more than than postures, and it's as you point out, it's it's sort of ironic because we all we often hear this oh, yoga is more than the postures. And yet, either that's what most people are focused on, that's what scholars have have, have focused their attention to studying, um, but it's sort of become this cliche that yoga is more than posture. So tell us a little bit about why you felt that, you know, that was important or kind of how you, you seek to intervene on uh, studying modern yoga beyond just asana and postures. Yeah, Absolutely. That's kind of like the launching point of the book, right? You're, you're mentioning right now, like at the beginning, I'm like, I'm trying to look at yoga beyond the postures. And there's a, several reasons for that. First of all, in my own experience, in my own training, I mean, of course, my first class was a postural yoga class I mentioned with Joe Tastula at Yoga Glow. But when I went out of the studio and I went into the Hill Street Yoga and Meditation Center, I was introduced to all these different practices by Dr. Chapel and my yoga teacher, teacher training cohort that were just so interesting and just showed me that yoga is so manifold and there's so many parts of yoga practice in different traditions that they deserve more attention, I guess you could say, from a a critical scholarly perspective. And it's not that they haven't received any, but I don't think enough, particularly in, in contemporary yoga communities. And so when people, when we look at modern, the field of modern yoga studies, I think, as you say, it's fair that it's it's fair that there is so much scholarship devoted to postural yoga or things around postural yoga communities because postural yoga is huge, right? There's no doubt about that. And I and I still practice postural yoga, so I have nothing against it. But in terms of doing research, I was I was at the University of California Davis. I found out okay, I'm not going to be able to do textual studies, but I was reading all this secondary scholarly literature on all the yoga texts. I still find it so interesting. And I still want to someday go down that path. But in terms of contemporary yoga, I was thinking like, what can I do? And I read a chapter by Smriti Srinivas, who ended up becoming my advisor uh, in her in her book on, Sai, uh, or not the book on Sai Baba's, uh, Gurus of Modern Yoga, Singleton. And uh, was it, was it uh, Byrne that edited that, that one? I can't remember. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that book... There's a chapter in there that my my advisor had written that talked about like a repertoire of practices that go together to try to create some kind of effect, right? Your gurus use these frequently. And so I, I started to think with that. I started to think about what are the categories that haven't really been studied very closely but are important. And three, there were others that came out when I was in the field, right? But three that really hit me were the way we eat the way we practice music, broadly speaking, so I put singing in the title, and the way that we breathe. And I thought, well, these things are complementary to asana. People who practice asana often do these things very intentionally as well. So why don't I take a look at those carefully? And of course, in all the communities I was in, they all practice asana. So that was part of their practice, right? But uh, so I, I really tried to focus in on these three understudied categories of practice just to really try to open up a conversation in yoga studies around them so we could we could dive into those and more. I mean, there's so many other things. I think it opens up the opportunities for what we could look at in modern yoga studies because there's so many things that get appended onto yoga or postural yoga and all those things that was really, really trying to initiate a conversation around 
other categories of practice that we find important. Right. So eating, singing, and breathing. It's not not exactly eat, pray, love, but it's pretty close. <laughs> I was thinking when I saw the title for the first time. Um, but uh, it's pretty close, actually, eating, singing, bhakti, kirtan, praying. I don't know if breathing is love necessarily, but somebody somebody might <laughs> claim that. So let's let's go through each of those though, because you, again, you have chapters devoted to them: um, eating, singing, and breathing. What can you tell us about those within modern yoga? Um, what do those categories reveal to us about the way yoga is practiced and understood today? Absolutely. So. A lot of practitioners, I think, are concerned with finding like the continuities and the discontinuities between their practice today and things that we know about in in ancient and medieval yoga, right? And so one of the first things that struck me as interesting in my own yoga studies along the way was that there was an attention to food. So I'll just go through these one by one, right? There was an attention to food in yoga texts. It wasn't the central thing. But it was a foundational thing in a lot of texts, like in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, when it tells you like, you know, mitahara, you should eat uh, what I what I translate as, and you're the Sanskritist, so you can tell me if this is right or not, measured diet rather than moderate diet. Because when I read it in the text, when I read it in the yoga text, you know, it tells us in these Hatha Yoga texts that we should eat a sh- certain amount of food, we should drink a certain amount of water, we should leave a certain amount of the stomach empty uh, for pranayama, for example, right? So it's telling us how to eat. That's the point. And the reason it's doing that, or at least it seems like the logic in the text is it's kind of setting you up for what's going to come next, right? It's part of those purification exercises, preparing the body for the later stages yet to come. And I thought, well, that's what we did in our yoga training too. And every community that I lived in, so there are three communities in the book, food was like so important. Like you had to eat a certain way as part of the yoga practice in order to kind of experience the fullness of whatever the tradition was trying to offer, right? So I just found that so fascinating that not only was it in yoga texts in its own kind of way, but that this idea of like a sattvic or pure diet trickles down and trickles through into contemporary forms of yoga all over the world. And it remains there as one of the sort of key initial practices, at least, to get on the path or to practice yoga. It was yoga practice. And so I, I really found myself, for example, I've written about this uh, a couple times, but when we started our training at Hill Street and we were told, hey, we should all be vegetarian now, or at least try to be vegetarian, I thought, okay, I'll do it. I wasn't vegetarian at the time. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And uh, I found myself at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market <laughs> ordering vegetarian food all of a sudden instead of whatever else I used to order, right? And it didn't occur to me at the time, but, you know, as I was going through my PhD, I thought there's something very specific about Santa Monica, that Santa Monica farmer's market culture and Santa Monica itself that was like a really productive space for us to be having this yoga training in because there's a lot of this idea of like heightened consciousness and awareness in Santa Monica. There's there's so many restaurants and stores and food that serve, you know, the co-ops and stuff that are serving all this quote unquote yogic food. Um, and so I found that like, okay, this is really interesting that I'm here. So long sorry, story short. So, sorry to I interrupt go, you there. I have, I, I can't help but interject because I was just in Santa Monica last week. <laughs> we went down to LA to visit friends for Thanksgiving 
and uh, we went down to Venice Beach. We rented electric scooters and we rode up on the boardwalk up to Santa Monica. And it really is a vibe there. Like I mean, the 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 way that people are kind of working out on the beach, and there people were doing acro yoga, and there was a very body centric consciousness um, that was very apparent. And we went to, you know, we went out to lunch. We went to Cafe Gratitude. Have you ever been there? I was going to ask you if you went to Cafe Gratitude. We did. Yeah. I've been to Cafe Gratitude before, but I think it it really hits on kind of what you're describing. I mean, even when you order the food, you 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 order off the menu in the form of an affirmation. I am abundant. I am beautiful. I am radiant. You know, um, so you're kind of embodying this positive ideology or affirmation connected to your food um and the food is all all vegetarian i can't remember if it's vegan or not um but anyway sorry i didn't i didn't mean to interject but i'm just as you're describing santa monica and this and that that part of la or southern california certainly other parts of the world too we can you know describe in that way but it, it is very intentional and specific and um Sometimes it, it is very much embodied in the food choices and consumption. So just to highlight that. I'm glad. No, I'm I'm so happy that you did because I mean that's that that's what gets me excited about this research. And and it's those moments where you, you go into Cafe Gratitude, you realize you're ordering in a certain way. There's a certain kind of food around a certain kind of ideology and way of eating, right? And there's so many of them in Santa Monica. And it it's it's around like you said the body it's around health it's around all these things and who's in those cafes well a lot of times it's yoga practitioners what are they doing in there who are they what's their demographic these are all the interesting questions that come up and there's like a whole history of course to those restaurants the yoga practitioners who are coming into them the studios that were were there like yoga works is no longer there i don't think i think it closed down but there's all these interconnected uh, aspects of yoga practice and and cafe gratitude is like part of that history right i don't write about that in my book but that's totally exactly what i'm talking about is that there's these living communities and they haven't been studied but there's when you really dive into them they're so super interesting and that's what i try to do in chapter one of the book um, and the food was about, delicious by the way <laughs> yeah it was a good it was fantastic yeah, yeah. The smoothies, right? All of it. It's just and the ambiance. You just <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. yeah. But 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 to your point, um, you know, I've had and I've had I've had students write papers on this, looking at food and diet within Hatha Yoga, for example, and looking at it historically. I mean, you, you find the topic of food and yoga kind of everywhere throughout the texts from you know, from the Upanishads all the way through Mahabharata and Gita and up to up to Hatha and Raja yoga texts and then and then talking about yoga teacher trainings and how they're drawing on you know some of that literature um, so so I agree it's it's sort of an understudied um, area I, I think more could be done on that um, I'm curious did did you did you look at in, in your in your kind of case study? Were you looking at all at like the way that those texts and kind of traditional quote unquote views of yogic views on food are informing those practices today, or kind of what was your what was your focus in looking at these dietary and food practices? 
Yes. So in this particular chapter, and so in chapter one, what I'm studying are these food practices at Gurani Anjali's ashram on Long Island, New York, during the American counterculture. And what I'm doing there, because Gurani Anjali's tradition was the one that I was first trained in through Chris Chapel, is I'm really interrogating my own first encounters with, with yogic diet. Where did they come from, these particular practices? Why am I being told to be vegetarian, right? Well, I knew from our training and I knew from reading Gurani Anjali's work, obviously, that what she was doing in her mission statement in the ashram on Long Island, New York, during the counterculture and beyond, was she was trying to show people how to practice Patanjali. Uh, how to practice ahimsa. So she was most specifically and most often, as it's written into the charter and mission of her ashram, trying to teach Patanjali's yoga through the Yoga Sutra. And of course, she's drawing she's drawing on the first yama of ahimsa. And she's saying in order to practice ahimsa, one of the primary ways we do that here is through our diet, by, by being vegetarian. Uh, so the chapter really draws on her logic and the logic as it was told to me through her students of how that kind of brings you to an experience of your higher consciousness, Purusha. It was one of the many tools in, in her repertoire, you could say, uh, but one of the main tools to get students to have an experience of their higher consciousness was to have them, along with all the other things they do in the chapter, to have them commit at least in some way, shape or form, or at least for a certain period of time to a vegetarian diet. And she ties that, she's tying all this directly to things like Ahimsa in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is, of course, has a history of its own, right? Like, where is that text coming from? Uh, I read a little bit about it in the chapter, but I, I show in the chapter how basically these ideas of food and other things that I get into the book are being exported out of Bengal, out of colonial Bengal, along with this long colonial history of these texts being discovered and taking on new lives, so to speak in other worlds of practice. And so what Anjali, I see Anjali doing is taking the Yoga Sutra out of this colonial moment where the Yoga Sutra has a resurgence in sort of middle-class popularity, you could say, and then bringing it to America and teaching it in America uh, in a way that hadn't been done before in America. And, and vegetarianism becomes the core way to express ahimsa for her uh, tradition. There are other things that happen in in the chapter around food, including service, selfless service. So people, they open up a vegetarian restaurant. So I tell the story about that a little bit. And she's using service around vegetarian food in the restaurant. And she's referring directly to the Bhagavad Gita to do that. She's saying you're practicing karma yoga by serving in the restaurant without any attachment to the outcome of your action, by being here without getting upset and, and holding it together when you're in the you know, you're you're working with other employees. So she used it as a way to kind of manage the, the workforce, but she's using it directly taken out of the Bhagavad Gita. She's referring to it as karma yoga from the Gita. She's talking about Krishna and, and, all, and Arjuna and all these things. So yes, so that's the first chapter. That's how it's drawing on these textual traditions that we know are so important. All right. And let's, let's go on to singing and breathing. Um, tell us, you know, a, a bit about those chapters. Yeah, so then chapter two takes us to Hawaii, uh, on the big island of Hawaii. I lived there for a couple of years, and there was a particular six-month period when I lived at Polestar Gardens, which was a community founded based on the teaching of Paramahansa Yogananda. And in this particular chapter, what I encountered was living there in the community that meditation, Kriya Yoga meditation, 
was their main thing, right? And so Kriya Yoga is an initiatory form of meditation that I am not initiated into, but I could still meditate with people up to a certain point in the in, in the community. And one of the main ways that they initiated their meditation was with kirtan. And we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form. I'm sure we've at least seen a harmonium. And the ensemble is what really struck me as interesting. And what I do in this chapter is I show, for example, they're playing the ukulele, you know, this, this little four-string, like, guitar thing that we would typically associate with Hawaii or with tropical paradise and tropical fun and the sun kind of thing. But what they're using it for is to initiate a meditation on the unstruck sound that we once again know about from texts like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and other, other texts. So Yogananda is carrying this tradition forward, but his this new community that's built around his teachings is also using these other instruments. And so what I do is I trace the history very closely of the ukulele, of the harmonium, because everybody wants to know where does the harmonium come from, because it's used everywhere and they just take it to be a sort of symbol of authenticity. But I tell the social life of the harmonium a bit. And I just show how all these pieces come together for Yogananda in the colonial crucible that he's in. And then how he exports them into the United States, and then they eventually land in Hawaii. Uh, so it's a very complicated but fun story to see how all these pieces congeal, and all of a sudden we're meditating on the unstruck sound, according to practitioners, right? But we're doing it with all these new things. So I try to show, again, once again, like there's some continuity and there's some discontinuity between what we would perceive as some kind of traditional Indian practice and what it is we find ourselves doing on the big island of Hawaii, right? Okay, so you mentioned the harmonium as this arbiter of authenticity. Um, and indeed, you have Western kirtan artists like Krishnadas and Jayutal and you know even Indian uh, kirtan artists, of course, in, in India, outside of India. And I, I think you're right that the, the harmonium does really confer this... Um, uh, sense of authenticity for for a kirtan and, and bhakti devotional concert or performance. So just say say a little bit about about that, and maybe I can ask you where where does the harmonium come from? Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief. I'll, I don't want to spoil it all, but yeah. um, it's a, yeah. I always had this question, so for me, it was kind of fun to research this question of like, what is the harmonium? Sure. When you look at it, it looks half Indian, it looks half European, and that's what it is. Um, so it was first patented in Europe, and I'll, I will give more detailed history in in the course itself. But first patented in Europe, eventually made its way, as we'll see, to India during the later colonial period. And Indians made it their own, as they did with many other things. There's many other instruments that that we discuss in this chapter that Indians made their own. So like in Carnatic music, for example, the violin becomes part of Carnatic music, right? And these, these instruments always have a very interesting social history. So it goes to India, they make it their own, and I'll tell you how they do that in the class. And then it gets exported back out as a sort of symbol of authenticity from that point on in the late colonial to even after India's independence, it gets exported back out to places like Europe and the United States. And yoga gurus are often bringing this with them. And so the sound and the way that it's played and everything gives a feeling of authenticity, right? Of, of I'm participating in something ancient and authentic, which I think in some ways, as I show in the chapter and I will in the class, you still are 
But there's also something very, very new about it. And one of those things that's very new is the harmonium itself. It's a very young instrument, so to speak. So we'll talk more about that in the class. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of confirms what I've, what I've always thought and understood about the harmonium. So glad, glad to know that that still, still checks out uh, and look forward to learning and, and reading more about that. Um, all right. Let's go into your, your third chapter the final category here we've talked about eating and singing let's look at breathing and pranayama which which i think is from what i've heard and i've seen you give some presentations on this i think is one of the most interesting chapters that you have uh in the in this book so tell us about breathing yeah it was one of the chapters that was easiest for me to write um because it it's, it was like sort of a build-up to the end of the book and when i got there i thought i already know what i want to say i just need to find the right voices to say it with. And so pranayama, again, this is something that is understudied in, in contemporary yoga traditions and modern yoga studies. We practice it all the time, even when we're just doing, some people just say they're doing ujjayi, whatever that means to them in their particular tradition. And so here's an understudy practice that we undertake all the time. We're told to breathe certain ways. Some of those ways are new. Some of those ways come out of the Hatha yoga texts and so there's so many different ways we're told to breathe in contemporary yoga practice. Well, this book then ends in India. And this is one of the features, I think, of the book is instead of beginning in India, it ends in India to see where we're at with yoga now. Because we know it got exported. We know that Guru said it's India's gift to the world. We know all these things happen. So I, I, I end there to be like, okay, what's going on there now? And I go to Kaivalyadam Yoga Institute, which uh, some of us have probably been to, right? Uh, they have great manuscript collections there. And in the institute down the street, uh, a lot of Sanskrit scholars will go there. And I engaged in a lot of practices there. And one of the things that I did a lot of with them was pranayama. And I also went there, I, I've told the story a couple of times with a back injury. I hurt my back when I was playing volleyball in Hawaii pretty badly. And I went through their whole yoga therapy session. I was there for months going through it. And they fixed my back. And I, I like to emphasize that, like they're doing something good there, right? They really, they did something really good and it really helped my back. Now, throughout that whole process, when I was there, we were practicing various forms of pranayama, which were, of course, very tranquilizing, calmed us down. But one of the things that I try to address in this particular chapter is what does it mean to practice pranayama in pollution? Because, of course, the air in India, especially this time of year, it was it was November, it was this late time of year that I was there when we're doing this interview right now. The air is heavily polluted, as we saw right now. The AQI, the index of how unhealthy the air is, skyrockets. And there's this thing called the Asian brown cloud that hangs over South Asia for months. And it's just, it's all the air pollution getting trapped right, right there. There's also one in Denver. It's called the Denver brown cloud. So this isn't just happening in Asia, but the point is that we're doing pranayama in these polluted regions, and we're receiving teachings from the teachers at the institutes, not just Kaivalyadam, but other ones as well, that say that this pranayama is purifying us. It's purifying our lungs. It's purifying our body. And so I, I always kind of grappled with how is it that by doing pranayama in polluted air that I'm going to be able to purify my body. And for me, it wasn't as important of a question, but for people who were coming from urban Mumbai, whose lungs were plagued with, with air pollution, they had asthma and all kinds of things like this. They were being told that by doing pranayama, they were going to purify their lungs and they would be able to breathe better and all of that, right? Which was true. 
to a degree because many of them were getting some relief by coming up to Lonavala, which is just outside of Mumbai up in the Western Ghats. They were breathing relatively cleaner air, although the AQI was still dangerous. Uh, it wasn't as bad as Mumbai. So they're getting like temporary relief for their lungs. They're receiving training in pranayama and things that they can then take back to Mumbai and keep practicing. And so what this chapter deals with is, is the kind of conundrum or the, the, the Joseph Alter says, you know, the this conundrum of pranayamically breathing inner city air to kind of purify our bodies. What does that mean? And so this chapter kind of opens up that question and brings us into conversation with the field of uh, pollution studies to to draw out some conclusions about what's happening there from like a social scientific point of view. So I won't spoil it, but that's kind of the <laughs> that's what that chapter is about. And um, it's something that I've grappled with for a long time, practicing pranayama, even here in Europe. Sometimes when I go into Zurich, like into the city. Uh, we recently received a Guardian report that said it's basically not safe to breathe in European cities anymore. And so if I'm doing pranayama or breath workshop in Zurich, what does that mean? And I'm doing it to purify myself. What does that mean? Am I actually purifying myself? So this is a difficult question that this chapter raises and that I'll teach in the class as well. Mm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It really puts context and environment Um you know, in, in, into play in such a tangible way that we don't really think about when we think about just these um, these practices in an abstract way. If you're just reading these 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 texts, for example, that tell you to do all alternate nostril breathing, sometimes they will tell you a kind of idyllic environment to go lay your you know antelope skin uh, mat or asana. Um, you know, by a river or trees, but but these these medieval Sanskrit authors couldn't possibly have fathomed the type of um, air pollution and urban settings, you know, that we are sort of dealing with today. Um, so to just take those practices and texts and and prescriptions abstractly um, and to try to apply them today, we we have to account. For, for all of these things that you bring up, um, including, you know, the privilege of getting to breathe clean air, um, the ability to to go, to visit, to travel to a place like Kaivalya Dam willingly out of choice, and then the ability to pick up and leave and, and come back to, to somewhere else. Whereas, as you discuss, for those Mumbai, you know, residents who are coming, it's not, it's, you know, it's not really they can try to escape the city and, and go to Lanavla, um, and perhaps there's some relief just in doing that. Um, but it's not as if they can, you know, leave beyond, beyond that. And, and what does that, what does that mean? And, and how can yoga help or, or is yoga not helping? I mean, is, is the pranayama practice, could it be inflicting more harm because you're, you're breathing more, of this toxic air into your lungs or is it increasing your lungs capacity you know to to to, to breathe uh, better um so these are these are interesting questions we're not going to answer those right now and i know that's not necessarily what you're trying to do either in the book but um critically asking these important questions um is is fascinating and and also as i'm listening to you talk about that i'm leaving for india in two days and so you're talking about this this brown cloud of asia at this time of month and i'm 
you getting me a little bit worried about what I've signed myself up for next week. Uh, yeah, sorry, did it, didn't try to spoil <laughs> your trip, but I think it rained since uh, in the last recently, so you should be okay. Okay. We'll see. Okay. Well, we'll have to we'll have to be careful with our with our pranayama practice, or or I'll I'll be thinking about that with pranayama practice, um, in ways that maybe I maybe I hadn't previously. Um. All right. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about. Um. You know, of 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 unpacking your book. Um. There's there's some really interesting things. Um. That that you do. Um. The last thing I'll just kind of ask you, and then I want to shift to talking a little bit more specifically about the course and what students can can look forward to. Just looking at your conclusion a little bit, and um, one of the, the kind of calls for the future of yoga studies, I think that one thing that you try to embody in your work and that you are kind of putting forth, you write that it is possible and necessary to study yoga in a way that is simultaneously critical and sympathetic. And I know throughout your work, I think you do you do a great job actually of kind of identifying your positionality, which I think is it's more common in anthropology than it is in philology. Um, and there's reasons perhaps for that. But you do, I think, an admirable job of kind of identifying yourself as a as a practitioner, as a former teacher, as somebody who's gone through a teacher training, and how it really is your experiences, your lived experiences in those communities that are really informing some of your own research questions and your relationships with your so-called informants and the data that informs this book. Um, but tell us a little bit about... Um, why why this is necessary and and how this can be kind of done skillfully um combining this critical talk about critical yoga studies and if somebody said i'm doing sympathetic yoga studies we might question that but why is that important to balance critical and sympathetic yoga studies yeah it, it was a challenge for me for the whole uh for the whole research process from start to finish because I think like any of us who commit to some yoga practice for an extended period of time, we realize that there's something powerful and transformative about it, right? Um, and that could, I even put a footnote at the end that that could just be awesome to practice itself. But, you know, I'm talking about these more soteriological systems that are in this book. So there, I, the first thing I want to make sure that the reader understands is I don't deny the transformative power of yoga. And I, I do think it's a gift. And I feel very lucky myself to have been able to have the opportunity to learn various yoga systems, practice them, and, and myself feel some kind of personal transformation as a, as a result. And I think probably all of your listeners are listening because they've had some kind of experience, right? Um, and so that I wanted to have that and hold on to that. And at the same time, there were all these other critical things that were coming up along the way that I just couldn't like turn my eye to. So the air pollution is one, right? Like most people don't even think about the air pollution, especially people who are just traveling in. They don't think about it too critically when they go to practice yoga somewhere. Uh, people don't think about a lot of things. And we've seen this recently come up just in, with, with spirituality in general in society that we will let ourselves like go and believe things that are just absolutely non-scientific and not true. And a lot of that's because I think we've had a transformative experience and we see it as somehow alternative 
to these other ways of knowing, scientific ways of knowing. We become anti-vaxxers or we become, you know, all these different political things that have come up recently. And we somehow cling to things that are not just simply not scientifically verifiable, whatever they are, right? And I know it's hard sometimes to accept that the world is full of suffering, but part of what this book tries to do at the same time is it tries to say, like, we can't deny, like, some of the hard scientific realities of the world. We can have our transformative experience, but it's happening alongside the very real kind of material samsara that that these yoga traditions say we are in. And so what I try to balance in this book is bringing together these two ways of knowing. One is the yogic way of knowing that we experience through the embodied practice, which I feel like in academia gets overlooked a lot and, and kind of played down. But I think it's serious and we need to take it seriously. But on the other hand, we can't throw out these critical perspectives. We can't just walk into polluted air and breathe polluted air and pretend like it's not having some negative effect on our body. We have to be able to do all of these things together. And so when I say critical and sympathetic, or sympathetic and critical, that's what I mean. I, I think that these two worlds combined, yogic studies and yogic practice, can be powerful together. They were for me. Uh, it's not the only way, but I think it is a powerful way to approach yoga in a in a in a way that, you know, if I saw myself 10 years ago, I would be like, man, you have so much to learn. There's so much you need to learn. And, and I did because I went through the whole PhD process and studying yoga traditions critically. But uh, I wanted to hold on to the baby in the bathwater. I didn't want to like, there's something special there still in yoga, right? That there's no denying it. And what I try to do is, is hold on to that through this critical process and invite other students, other graduate students, researchers, whoever wants to learn about their own traditions into a process so that they could do it themselves and that within their own traditions. Well said. I know you've, you've really, you've been on the book tour during doing the, the yoga studies circuit here. So uh, great to catch you here on our podcast, but I am curious to ask you, because I'm sure you're actually even tired of talking about this book at this point, <laughs> hopefully not too tired because we're going to do a whole course on it. But um I'm I am curious to ask you, do you have any other research projects that you're already working on or thinking about um, next? Yes. So we actually just signed a, a contract with SUNY Press in Jain studies. So we're doing a book called Engaged Jainism. Many are probably familiar with the field of engaged Buddhism, which has a long history of its own. What we're doing is my co-editor, Kojin Bohanik, and I from Arihanta Institute, we're really diving now into Jain studies. And I'm keeping the yoga studies going, but I'm looking more at Jain yoga now in, in my chapter in this book. What we're trying to do is show all the manifold ways that Jains engage with the world through their yoga, through their seva, their, you know, whatever it is, uh, both for better, for worse, whatever. We're trying to bring like a critical volume out on the way that Jains are currently engaging really engaging the world and also historically as well. So there's some philological work in there as well. Um, so I, my work has now gone really primarily into Jane studies, but I still hold on to the yoga piece always. Uh, it remains central in my own work. That sounds great. And uh, something we haven't covered very much at Yogic Studies yet, which is Jane yoga. So we'll have to have you and Kojin on in the future and others um to to do some podcasts and maybe some courses on on jain yoga because it's a it's another very important um 
uh, thread or, or chapter, you know, within yoga's vast um, you know, history and traditions. Um, all right. Well, tell us now, finally here, let's get into the course. You know, you're going to you're going to teach this four week online course um, titled after your book. Uh, it's going to be YS127, Embodying Transnational Yoga. The course is going to run live from January 8th to February 2nd, 2024. So this will be our first course of the of the new year. And, um, you know, we've been talking about the book and its chapters and its content. So we've, you know, already had quite a peek at, I think, you know, some of the, the material there. Uh, but just tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about approaching this course, what students can expect, and uh, what, what you hope that they'll take away from this course. Yeah, I'm very excited, first of all, Seth, and honored to be on the platform. Uh, really excited to teach this course at Yogic Studies. And I was just writing up the syllabus. I, I mentioned it before to you that I was on the airplane on the way to the AAR, and I was thinking like, okay, this is a good time to sit down and write this. So I was, I've been writing up the syllabus. And I've got it laid out into four main components. And the first part will be that it will be a kind of invitation into the world of ethnographic study of yoga. What does it mean to study yoga culture, your yoga culture right now, where you are, what you already know so well? And what would it mean to study it critically? So in this first part, what we're going to do is we're going to read the introduction to my book, a couple short articles. And what we'll do is we will look at the way that modern yoga has thought about yoga studies, thought about asana and other practices. And then we'll open up the opportunity to say, like, what other practices are there that we could study? Uh, eating, singing, breathing, but also people, will, students will bring their own interests into the classroom. So somebody might be doing yoga and uh, rock climbing or, you know, yoga, whatever yoga and they're doing, you know, the yoga gets appended to so many things. They will bring their own interests in and say, I've always wanted to know more about this about my tradition. And so it's kind of the first one is really an invitation into the method of the, the contemporary study of yoga and where we're at in the field of yoga studies to invite anyone, scholar or not, to invite these practitioners in to research their own traditions. And then part two, I'm then going to just take us through the book. So we'll go into chapter one and we'll look at the history of yogic diet at in in the counterculture mainly in the american counterculture and what this is going to do is it's going to open us up to a dialogue with the field of food studies so food studies is another area of academic inquiry that helps us look at the ways that we eat why we eat the ways we eat uh, what shapes the foods that we eat and why we eat the foods we eat so we're going to talk a lot about food in this in this first thing and we're going to get some history of the american counterculture and why the hippies ate the way they ate in during the american counterculture which is a really fun history so we'll learn about that and how it really informed yoga early on and has really actually stuck around so cafe gratitude again uh, a lot of these things that happened during that moment are still with us today so we'll see in the recent past, we're going to see our present and we're going to really see where we are with the way that we eat as yoga practitioners, really no matter where we are in the world. And then the third module is going to take us to Hawaii. And then we're going to look at these practices that we were talking about earlier. The students will get a more detailed history of this harmonium, something that a lot of people want to know about. They'll learn about also the ukulele. They'll learn about the history of the ukulele and there, a little spoiler alert, it's also a European instrument. So you'll get to learn that whole history as well. Um, but you're going to learn about 
Paramahansa Yogananda. You're going to learn about his particular approach to music. You're going to learn about his meditation system. And you're going to learn about why it's important to practice the way he says you're supposed to practice meditation, but why and how these particular instruments in kirtan that are not so old still seem to have a powerful transformative effect on practitioners. And then finally, in module four, I will take you back to India, where you will be uh, soon, and we will look at pranayama. So we'll talk about pranayama a little bit in Hatha Yoga texts. Uh, I don't get too far into texts because uh, it's not it's not the main focus of the chapter, but I'm going to show how these texts get used and pulled into these places, as you were saying before, and they're following this cultural logic and show how this logic is meant to purify the subtle body of the yogin, right? The pranayama practices and what it means once again to do it in pollution. So students are gonna get an introduction there to the field of pollution studies and get to learn uh, about their own pranayama practices, ask critical questions about their own pranayama practices, what their pranayama practices may or may not be doing. And uh, we'll also read the conclusion in that of the book, it's a very short conclusion. And, and then I will invite the students to throughout in this, this module, as well as the others, to really take a look at their own traditions and ask their own questions and invite them into their own research process. All right. Well, so that's YS127, Embodying Transnational Yoga. It's going to be taught by Dr. For Dr. Christopher Miller. And again, it's going to run live from January 8th through February 2nd, 2024. But if you're listening to this and it's uh, in the future, then everything's been recorded and you can access it on demand for, for self-study. Well, uh, thank you so much, Chris. This has been really fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to to share? Oh, let me let me ask you where where can uh, listeners uh, find the book itself? Uh, where can we direct them? We'll, we'll we'll put links in the show notes. But for those who are listening, yeah, it's it's available on almost all major sellers. But if you go to the Routledge site. Routledge is, and you just if you just type in embodying transnational yoga and you go to Routledge's webpage, there is a discount code that I can give you, Seth, that runs until the end of the year for I think twenty percent off. So uh, it's a little bit expensive book, but there is also an ebook version, and I, I highly recommend if people can't afford it just to get the ebook version, it will be enough. We're going to just be reading a chapter at a time, so you don't have to read the whole thing at once. Yeah, and we'll we'll really encourage students who take the course to to purchase the book. It's a great opportunity to get to read uh, a recent publication in the field and to get to study uh, that that text with the scholar author uh, himself. And uh, so there's, as usual, pre-recorded lectures, but then every Friday we'll meet for a live Q&A with Dr. Miller. So, yeah, Chris, anything else uh, that you would like to, to, to add here or that you didn't get to say as we wrap things up? Uh, well, yeah, one thing is that it, the book won't be required for, I will also give some other central articles for people so they don't have to feel like they have to buy the book to take the class. They don't have to. It will certainly be more interesting if they do, I think. So I'll provide other short readings for those who can't, and that's fine. Um, and otherwise, Seth, I just wanted to thank you once again. I really enjoyed talking to you and I really enjoyed the podcast and of course, Yogic Studies. All right. Well, 
Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Yogic Studies podcast. Uh, please consider supporting the podcast by liking, subscribing, leaving us a review on iTunes, or sharing this episode with a friend. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to leave us a comment or a question below. I'm sure uh, Chris or I would be happy to follow up with you. Or you can email your questions to podcast at yogicstudies.com. All right. Well, thanks again to our guest, Dr. Christopher Miller, and to all of our listeners. Please take care and keep studying.